This is Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley celebrating Bay Area innovators. Today, host Ojig Yuretsian is speaking with Mary Webb. She's a novelist, playwright, teacher, filmmaker, trailblazer, and peace builder. Her latest short film is Living Room Revolution, The Race Dialogues. Hi, Mary. Before we launch into the film, can you please tell us what inspired you to create a dialogue group in the first place? In the first place, it was a film, and it was called Long Night's Journey Into Day, not to be confused with Eugene O'Neill's Long Day's Journey Into Night. And it was two Berkeley women, Deborah Hoffman and Frances Reed, who made this film. And I saw it alone, so it wasn't as if I was chatting with my friends afterwards. I was thinking and thinking. It was a film about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. And I thought, we used to pick at them because we thought we were ahead. And now it seems as if they're ahead. And a lot of people on the radio were talking about people should talk about race, and they don't do it. And I thought, well, I know some people. I have a living room. Why don't I do it? And did you ever think in those days that whatever you created would move forward 18 years? We've started the 20th. I didn't think about it one way or another. I'm not a big think about the future person. Let's deal with what we're doing right now. You just had your 72nd meeting. What do you think it is about this dialogue group that sets it apart from other conversations? That's a great question. It's an attempt to get people from very different kinds of backgrounds to communicate with each other on a deep level about one of the worst problems in our society, namely racism. People have to say why they're there at the beginning, and a lot of people say, I'm here to listen and learn, and that's kind of beautiful, and I think that's true. We share food, as they say in Africa, first. Everybody brings food. No money exchanges hands. We have a topic each time. We have two moderators to keep us in check mildly, and we go at it. Over the years, relationships have developed between people who would never have met had they not come to my house for this event. And and that's a wonderful thing, too. As a society, we're so entrenched in our particular set of viewpoints and polarized. Why are stereotypes and racism so hard to talk about? And why is it so important to talk about these things? That's a big question. For certain African-Americans... For example, they would not particularly want to talk about what they really felt in front of white people who are, after all, the perpetrators in terms of a group. And some white people are maybe carrying a lot of white guilt, and they would think they didn't want to talk about that. But people in general, if you can get them into talking as they eat... And as they make personal contacts, I think, do want to go deeper. I was aware when I started this that I was probably going to give up a lot of my social life if I did this because it would be work to get it going. But it is a social life. And it's a social life on a much deeper level. And I can remember when I'm going to parties when I was 19 and saying, why don't people discuss serious things at parties? And everybody would say, oh, yes. And then they'd go back to what they were doing, and I'd say, well, why don't you do it now? This was not 
a popular thing to say. I was a troublemaker even then. How do you create or ensure safety in this environment? What makes this environment so special? The moderators do that. And we go around the room at the beginning, and the moderators ask each person to say why they're there. And and so we get a little sense of people if they're new people there. And if you're having a dialogue in your house against racism, you try to make the house feel friendly to people. I also teach classes in my house, so for me it's fairly easy. I love the idea of people using my home in this way to actually communicate with each other on a very deep level about important things, and then they get to know each other And they come from different groups. Some people might never have gotten to know people, say, from Africa. One of our moderators, Deborah Hailu, is Eritrean and Ethiopian. And our other moderator at this time is African-American, Carl Deborah. Those are the people who are, quote-unquote, the authority figures in the room. But it's very gentle in a way, and yet there's a lot of freedom With topics such as race and health, African-American and immigrant groups, rivals or allies, and parenting against racism, conversations can become heated. In my experience with dialogue, it requires a certain level of openness to being uncomfortable. How do you maintain respectful communication when there is strong disagreement in the room? Well, I have to go back to the moderators. Moderators are the main reason that that happens. Kate Mayer, who's my filmmaking partner, makes these incredible brownies. And every now and then, if people would get too upset and it was close to dessert, someone would say, give them one of Kate's brownies. (laughs) And it's become a joke that some people come only for Kate's brownies. There's a lot of joking. There's a lot of laughter. If you look at the film Living Room Revolution, The Race Dialogues, 10 minutes, you'll see laughter there. That helps. And can you tell us about any problems you've had to face as founder and host of the Living Room Dialogue Group on Race, Racism, and Ethnicity? And from where do you draw your energy? I think that I always, to the extent that I plan, that I always plan to have things I start continue. That's just the way I think. I have, they tell me, a fair amount of energy I think everyone has energy, and they choose to put it somewhere or somewhere else. I try not to spend most of my energy watching other people do things. I like to go to the theater. I like to go to movies. But I've also done stage productions, and I'm learning to make films. Kate and I made this film with Ed Herzog, who was our cinematographer for that. Living Room Revolutions, the race dialogues, that's how we learned to make a film. I would rather do things with my energy than watch other people do things or sit around and talk about the world would be wonderful if only these people would do this. And my reaction to that is, but what are you doing? So I love doing things, and I love seeing these people come together, and I realize it isn't just social, but it is social. And I think people get inspired from seeing your commitment and your level of perseverance Having been to a few of your meetings, I know how exhausting it could be afterwards because your mind is still spinning and your heart has opened in a way. It's like vulnerable making. 
the solution to that is that some of us sit up for three or four hours and process. And then sometimes people stay over and we go to brunch the next day. So processing is helpful. You can do as much or as little of that as you want. I suppose you could have a a small group meeting, say the week after, to see how something went if you wanted to do that. I always meet with Deborah Hailu and Carl Debrow way ahead of the date so that we can get a date, a specific date we can all do, decide on the topic, and talk about any difficulties that might have occurred at the last dialogue. And what compelled you to make this film? I was thinking about that only yesterday. I always knew from the very beginning that there had to be a film if I was going to start the dialogue. And Ed Herzog happened to be in my class. He was in my writing class. And I said, Ed, would you make this film when we start this? We hadn't even started yet. And he said, sure, he could work it out. And he did all the footage, and then he had too many things to do. So suddenly, he couldn't do the whole film. And then I thought, well, Kate Mayer had actually made her living doing videos at one time, medical videos. So I said something to her about, would you look at this footage? And she said, I was thinking about the same thing you were thinking. And it ended up that she took it all home, and two weeks later, I was involved as a filmmaker with her because she liked the idea of us doing it together, and I did too. But there was always going to be a film. I don't know why, because it popped into my head very soon after the idea of doing the dialogue did. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. Today, Oje Guretzian is speaking with Mary Webb about her innovative social justice endeavor, the living room revolution, race dialogues. And do you think it's a resource and an example, like a way to show people to demonstrate what dialogue is, if they might be it's interested? It's an amazing resource. And we had Mark Verlander, graphic artist, who made us a beautiful card. So I can give the card to strangers and say, I have something I want to give you. And then I show them this and say, this film will take only 10 minutes of your very valuable time to see, and perhaps you'll be interested in starting one yourself or in coming to ours. And the film is available for viewing by the public. It's available at livingroomrev.com, one word, livingroomrev.com. Yes. People are talking about race in... single race groups, right? When people get together with people of their own race, they're talking about their perspectives and what they think, but very rarely is it the case that people are talking across racial lines to each other about their experiences. And and that's that's what's missing in that sort of national uh, dialogue about race. It's, It's almost exclusively a single race discussion. It brought to mind my own history of having been born during the Second World War, Jewish, and the tremendous push, unspoken push, to not connect with my Jewish heritage in any, any of the religious or history, to feel culturally Jewish, and yet in terms of the interface with 
other kids at school. It was, it was this, this message of don't forget you're Jewish and fit in. <laughs> and it was very painful. When I speak about my experience, it is no way intended to silence you for one or anyone else. And if that needs to be the space, if I can't tell you that something bothers me, then I've silenced myself and racism perpetuates itself in silence. And so I want you to always feel that you can speak up and I may not respond to you in the way that you might feel comfortable with, but that's okay. If I wanted to fill out an application, I'm supposed to really fill out white. Did I feel the racism or uh, anything in this country? I don't know if I can call it racism, but I never felt uh, uh, comfortable. My other friend was a little surprised. Uh, she didn't know, she didn't feel to be uh, a minority. And in some ways, when she came to the dialogue, she realized, oh my goodness, I'm a minority. <laughs> I mean, who's white? I don't know, I don't feel white, so I always, because even when I tell them, I'm white, who are you, what are you? I say, I'm white. And I'm trying to figure out what that means and what we're talking about when they say Iranians are considered white by who and where and how is it manifested? It is great to have a place to come, you know, where you can commune with people, where you can um, break bread and share thoughts and feel like you have a community that provides you with uh, psychic support and spiritual support and sometimes even political support. It's really a joy to sing with that group of eight basses and I'm the only <laughs> white boy. What are you? People want to classify you. If they can put you in that kind of box, they feel, they don't feel good, I guess. I don't know. And so if you don't have a lot of color in your skin, you can't go around really saying that you're a person of color. Uh, or can you? And on there also are other resources, such as starting your own dialogue in 10 easy steps. So you're trying to get the word out, and you really want to promote this as a way to navigate our political, cultural terrain by having these civil conversations with each other. Yes, I want it to be a national movement. And some have started in San Francisco, one in Half Moon Bay, which is bilingual. And as we build communities that are multicultural, as people begin to understand each other's points of view more deeply, that's conceivably a deep cultural change. If you feel that you want to start something like this and you feel you're not the most perseverant or extroverted person in the world, you need to get a partner to work with you who will do the things that you don't want to do. As we start the 20th year, we have had only two sets of moderators, one producer, me, one place to have it. People feel good when they walk into my house. This is what I've been told. When you open the door into the living room, the living room invites you to come in. You could have arranged the furniture in 60 different ways that wouldn't have been as good. And everyone can speak from every chair in the room and reach everyone else. Occasionally, when we're really crowded, we have a few people sitting on the stairs, and they sometimes have to stand up and come down so people can see them. But 
for a limited space, it works very well. And I cannot emphasize enough how important food is. I'm more familiar with dialogues that take place with groups that are in conflict. There's Palestinian, Israeli, Jewish, Arab ones. And the one you host is unique because it focuses on the American experience with all the diverse cultures and the history and the, and the background of racism. Tell us how you've come up with the topics. Okay. We have this thing called the box It's a cardboard box. And I was trained in the South, although I grew up in New York City. I was trained in Alachua County, Florida, in doing things the grassroots way. And that means the simplest possible way you could do it with the least amount of money spent. So you take a cardboard box and you cut a slot in the top and people can take three-by-five cards out of it if they're going to have to write down what they will say later because they have to wait. They have to raise their hands and wait. They can also put a topic in the box on a three-by-five card. And then we try to encourage people to give us a lot of topics, choices. And then Carl and Debbie and I meet, and we go through all these, and we try to either pick one or synthesize some and come up with a topic that will be interesting enough and popular enough so that people feel it is worthy of their coming to this event and giving up. After all, in our case, it is a Saturday night when you could be doing many other things in the Bay Area. If you knew this was going on, why would you want to be anywhere else? There's nothing like this anywhere else. Now, what I want to see happen is there will be things like it anywhere else. Yours is different. Each one is different, and that's fine. And they can be done in schools, workplaces, and they can be done in people's homes. Seems like it builds community and promotes understanding and growth. Where can our listeners get more information? If you go to livingroomrev.com, and it will tell you some things about it. And you can contact me through my email, Mary H, as in Harry, Web13 at yahoo.com. And please, when you email me, give me a phone number too. It's much faster. That's Web with two Bs. Why race, racism, and ethnicity? I don't think I picked it. I think it picked me. I had been in the civil rights movement in the South. I had started an African-American dance troupe, which I was told by white people in Berkeley I couldn't possibly do. I did it. I ran it for seven years, and it's still going on with my lead dancer running it. Currently, it's called the Laverne Porter Dance Troupe because she's the one who's running it. This is something that's bothered me. Since I heard of it, and I started studying the Holocaust when I was eight years old because I went to a largely Jewish school and people were all impacted by that. And I thought, if if we have anything like this, I'm going to be involved in it. Of course, I didn't realize we had already had many, many things like that. And so that's always been something that I felt that I needed to deal with. And this was a new way of dealing with it. 
And I'm very, very, very passionate about this and very, very committed to it. I believe that the more dialogues you start, the more you will see what a flexible way of getting people together it is. People are always complaining about getting people together. And my response to that is, fine, get them together then. It's not that hard. It takes some work, but anything that's worth doing takes work. It seems like in Berkeley, it might be easier to get people together to talk about race. Maybe that's an incorrect assumption. How about other places like rural parts of the state or in the country or other geographic regions? One of the reasons I get to do so much is because I do things rather than thinking about what could happen if I were to do things. So I'm throwing this out to people right now. If you're interested in starting something in your workplace, I don't care if you live in Berkeley or Timbuktu, then you can email me. And if you leave me a number, I will call you back and we can talk about it. I don't believe that it's much easier in Berkeley. I think it's different. I saw how things were done in the South. It was easier to build community in the South than it is here because here, Everybody thinks they're right and that they know it all. This is not good for learning and listening. It's nice to see those people get in there who know everything and have them say they'd like to listen and learn. We're in a high-powered intellectual community. That doesn't mean that everybody's heart is educated. We're educating people's hearts. It's terrible what's going on in this country. And, of course, there are terrible things that have gone on all over the world. When people get together and they respect each other and they learn sometimes to love each other, everything changes. And in your group, it encompasses all different ages and ethnicities and cultures. We have someone from Zimbabwe who has very interesting things to say. And Filipino-American. And South American and Asian. Like, there's a breath a lot of, of voices a lot of african americans a lot of say european descended white people those would be the two large groups and then africans obviously deborah hailu our eritrean ethiopian and fungai goras from zimbabwe and on we go. And it's it's different every single time. Wilfred Galilo is our cinematographer, is Filipino, and he's been with it a while. Having come from a deep tradition of activism, being the founder of these dialogue groups, what have you learned? I've learned more patience. I've learned flexibility about certain things. You think things should go one way, but maybe they shouldn't because you want to meet the needs of the whole group. I've learned that you can't keep everyone happy, quote unquote, at all times, but you can keep the group growing and going and being wonderful and everybody's sense of humor is enormously important in this. So never think that you're not doing the work when you're laughing, because that's one of the most important things. To really understand at a deep, deep, deep level, and, and I learned this in teaching too, this is not about you, meaning me. It's about the group, and there are times when you have to sacrifice some of your own needs really quickly to get the group to be as powerful as you want it. And at the end of each dialogue, we stand and we hold hands. And I feel very strongly about this. And people can meditate or do whatever they 
want to do, but at the very least, the energy is going from hand to hand to hand, and we take that out when we leave. Do you have any experience or any initiatives working with children in the schools? Well, I'd love to do it. I'd love to start dialogues there, but somebody has to ask me to do it. I did run a daycare center, and when I ran a daycare center with two, three, and four-year-olds, I had the children vote for the rules of the school. And then we posted them at the height of a two-year-old. And you take a little two-year-old named Sabrina Boo, and you say, Boo, what did you do wrong? And she says, running in the classroom. And then I remind her that she voted for that rule. And, and I said, you won't do it again, will you? And she says, no. Two-year-olds are capable of voting for their own rules. So these dialogues are perfect for elementary school, middle school, and if you didn't get it before, high school. When I said that I was studying the Holocaust when I was eight years old, that's the most important thing, in a sense, because it was always there with me. I was very independent at a very early age. Was there a seminal moment that led you to your activism on the East Coast, and was there a seminal moment that led you to your activism on the West Coast? No. <laughs> I mean, this is the way I've always lived. When something comes up, if I think of something, I tend to start with my own ideas. The dance troupe was my idea as far as I know. I was in Berkeley dancing to something called Very Last Day. That was the song. And I was a dancer. I had some dance training. And I saw African-American girls in black leotards and tights doing a dance to this. Now, did I really see them? No, I saw an image. So if you use the word visionary, and it doesn't get too, oh my God, a visionary kind of thing, I am a visionary because I see things like a picture of the dancers and I go, oh, I will do that. And then white people in Berkeley tell me I can't possibly do it, as I said before. And then my vigor is redoubled by people's rejection. I have the kind of personality where if you say you can't do this, it's like in my head I'm going, just watch my fire. You weren't afraid of failing. And it was a it was a risk taking you were very comfortable with. As an innovator, that kind of courage and fiery spirit, I think, is what we want to hear about. There is a time to give up something that isn't working. That's part of it. Now, how do you how do you get a fiery spirit? I don't say try, and I don't say despite the outcome. I say I'm going to do this. I have a living room. I know some people. And with a dance troupe, I said, they don't have an African-American dance troupe. I will start one. And I got there. We were moving there from California. And I got there, and they didn't have a dance troupe. So I started one. I didn't know how to do it. I learned how to do it in the process. And is that the same with the living room dialogue? Absolutely. It's what I do with everything. We'll figure it out. Not everybody has a seminal moment. I mean, I I know who I am very well and very deeply. I don't ever know what I'm going to do next. And in fact, I have a website called Suck the Juice Out of Every Moment. It's about my experiences and my philosophy, sort of. Can you please tell us about your published works? The first one I published, Dark Roads, R-O-A-D-S, under another name, Leah Ross. 
because there was a Mary Webb already that people had heard of at that time, and I didn't want to go into competition. And that was a novel about the South and some of my experiences in the South. That has Dan Stroop in it. And the second one, which we're bringing out in the second edition within the next six months, is The God Hustlers, which is about religious cults and the nature of evil. And the question I'm asking myself in that book is, when all around the world there are terrible tyrants and they want to take away everybody's rights and kill them and torture them if they're not willing to give them up, how is it that so many people are willing to give up their own rights, and join something where someone else is going to run their lives. So I'm not a big fan of religious cults, as you might imagine. This took me five years. It was spurred in 1978 by what happened at Jonestown. If you turn over your paycheck and your personal rights to a group, there is no limit to what the leader of that group may ask you to do. Check out Alice Miller, the psychiatrist, her books, the ones that are really about the process that went on in various countries that allowed people to take over everything from other people. Okay, awesome. Thank you, Mary. Pleasure. I love it. You've been listening to Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. You can find all of our podcasts on iTunes University. We'll see you again in two weeks.